Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome. I'm Michael Casey. This is the Money Reimagined podcast, uh, which I bring to you a weekly with my wonderful co-host, Sheila Warren. You can listen to us weekly on the CD Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also love to hear from you. So make sure if you've got something to share, you can email us at podcast at coindesk.com with the subject line, Money Reimagined. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about AI, Sheila, which anyone who's been reading my columns of late know that I'm becoming a little bit obsessed with, a bit of an obsessive around AI and and, and its intersection with Web3 and, and governance. We've got a tremendous guest, Kurt Hemmerker from Mina Foundation, who is going to uh, come in and, and talk a little bit about that very issue. But before we do, it's a pretty big news week at Coindesk or anywhere in the crypto universe, and there's... We thought there was one elephant in the room that we were going to have to address after the finance uh, lawsuit from the SEC yesterday, but it turns out there's two elephants, which is a lot of elephants to put into a room because now there's also a lawsuit against Coinbase. Yes, uh, Mr. Gary Gensler, chairman of uh, the SEC, who also was quoted talking about how there's real patterns here, he was saying, between what Binance was doing and what FTX was doing patterns as if there's just this sort of consistently uh, easily reducible behavior that all crypto is involved in that obviously is nefarious and bad. And I, anyway, you know how I feel about this stuff. It just feels like we're in a world where we're putting big labels and throwing massive lawsuits and there's probably some, there may be some there there and I'm not going to like pass judgment on any of it because it's not the role of a journalist to do, but Wow. Uh, they threw the book at uh, certainly at Binance. I can say that much. Well, you know, I, I look, I have a slightly different take on this. I mean, I think uh, there are multiple elephants. Sure, fine. But these are elephants that we've been watching approach us for a very long time. You know, Coinbase had a Wells notice, which is an indication that 
uh, something is coming. The timing of this, I think, is very interesting, shall we say, Michael. I think it's interesting this all happened uh, after the market structure legislation that is being sponsored by Patrick McHenry and by G.T. Thompson, uh, which is revolutionary and groundbreaking in its own way, because we see the head of the Financial Services Committee in the House and head of the Ag Committee in the House collaborating on a massive bill, massive piece of legislation. And it's interesting timing that these two lawsuits come very shortly after uh, that text and that language dropped. Uh, we have a hearing today uh, on in the Ag Committee uh, where you know member people are testifying about that bill and other things, which is interesting. In- uh, we've seen including the compliance officer from Coinbase, right? That's right. Like yeah, the legal really? officer, chief legal officer there. Yeah. We're seeing, um, I think, you know, it, this is all this is all part. I I think, and I look I, as as I think is well established. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. However, it is certainly interesting timing uh, that these things are coming down in the timing that they are, and that they're coming down in succession the way that they are. And I think that's just a part of a larger strategy. You have to remember that depending on how what the response is to these things, I think Coinbase, I mean, again, I don't know what their response is going to be. It's all too new on the day we're recording this. But to the extent that Coinbase has indicated they're going to fight all of this, you're going to have, you know, you're going to be still in discovery potentially by the time Gary Gensler potentially is not at the chair anymore. So these are a lot of these things are optically more, you know, than they mm. than they are um, uh, in terms of the implications for the industry. That's right. That's right. You know, so a lot of this, you have to kind of view it in the broader context. Now, let's also not forget, contextualizing, uh, that we're in the middle of uh, fights at the Supreme Court about the very nature of the administrative state. So Chevron Doctrine, which is the concept that is well-established in jurisprudence, that if there is ambiguity in the way a law is written, an administrative agency has the ability to interpret that as they see fit is under open attack. Now, that is located primarily with the EPA right now, but the implication for all agencies, including financial regulators, is potentially quite profound. So mm-hmm. a lot of these things all fit together. Now, last point on this, to your point about elephants, I think, again, this is an image where it's like, you see the mirage, this is, the elephants have been marching towards us for a very long time. So this is not the dramatic turn of events I think some people are positioning it as, because if you didn't see this coming, I'm not sure what you were paying attention to or where you've been for the last, you know, six months, right? But the cases are very, very different. On the one hand, you've got allegations of what certainly seems to be fraudulent behavior. And as we saw from the CFTC complaint against Binance, some evidence, you know, to back that up, not for me to say, as you noted, Mm -hmm. which is true or not true, but certainly that was all included in at least that complaint and every reason to believe the SEC had similar access to similar you know, kinds of things, right? In, in some cases, those things are mirrors of each other. Uh, Coinbase, really no such uh, discussion. Really, the allegations against Coinbase are you didn't come in and register. But as Coinbase has been saying quite publicly for some time, what was the path to registration? What would you have us do? So on the one point, you've got this kind of like procedural footfault situation. On the other hand, you've got like, y'all are doing some really bad stuff that is not kosher, you know, morally, if not legally. Uh, and those are very different things. So the timing of these suits does not mean that they are parallel. There are elements of them that are parallel and where they where I think you're seeing the SEC's continue, or I should say Chair Gensler's, because the SEC, of course, is not monolithic, but where you're seeing Chair Gensler's continued, I don't know, you know, campaign, right, or obsession is pulling in a lot of these tokens and calling them securities and doing that through these actions rather than relying on Congress or others to kind of uh, figure out like what is the process around rulemaking here to make that determination. And I should note that people who are far more you know versed in securities law than I, including many we've had on the show, absolutely do not agree that that is a settled issue whatsoever. And I very much agree with that 
that contention and think that it's going to have to be settled in a court of law. Mm-hmm. Um, so there we are. But uh, well, like I said, look, you know, it looks, looks like there will be court cases. It looks like the, the, certainly the, the Coinbase, it does look as if they're going to fight this. And so there will be some, maybe some some resolution of it. Yeah. I mean, I do think that like, yeah, the very, very different cases. And but at the same time, I, I think to your point about the Wells Notice, Coinbase, fair enough. I think it is significant just how comprehensive the complaint against Binance and CZ actually is. And and sure, they've they've come up with some stuff that looks like it's damning. And there's certainly they've done like any good investigator would do, a lot of homework, and they've got some some smoking gun-like looking things. And that's what you're always going to see when you see the actual complaint, of course, right? But it's just the extent of it, the sheer size of it, the sheer like litany of charges, which is, if they're all there and they're all there, then presumably that's it. But it just feels like a statement. And there's a, it is convenient to find a bad guy. I'm, I'm not trying to defend anybody here because, you know, if these allegations are true, then it's something that we really need to have ousted entirely from our system. It's self-serving to have these bad guys. And, and this feels like it's, it's, it's very much constructed as one. Well, I, I don't know that I disagree with that. But again, I would say the CFTC filed an action earlier already against Binance. And a lot of the most explosive allegations were there. And some of those are just repeated here. So again, I, I think the reason that the industry is reacting to this one versus that one is because of the antagonist, as it were, right? Because it's Gary Gensler doing it. Or, it felt or bigger than the right? CFTC one to me, but yeah, yeah. You know, okay. you know but yeah. it, it piggybacks a lot on that too. It does. Yes. And the difference here, of course, is that what this chair, again, is doing is asserting a point of law that is not settled and mm. assuming it as fact, which is, well, that's an overstatement. But regardless, that that is a thing I think this, this pulls in, unlike the CFTC complaint, the difference here is not about how finance is treated. It's about the fact that it's pulling in all of these protocols. It's pulling in, you know, a ton of different tokens and saying, surprise, you are officially now a security and we're putting that into this complaint and you're not named in this complaint. So now the question is, how does industry respond to that? Because it, is it up to Binance and Coinbase to defend that piece of it and to say, we're not trading securities and go one by one by one? And, you know, it, it, it is it going to involve, I think, some coordination and uh, it, it, it affects the entire industry. The CFTC complaint didn't necessarily because there was no allegation of what the tokens were, right? They were mm. certainly not claiming them as commodities apart from Bitcoin, which is well established, I think. Right. But that's that's the difference about why this one is so much bigger. But in terms of the allegations qua Binance, I don't find them. That's the, the critical differentiator. The other thing that's differentiated while we're talking about this, just to close out this, this portion of the pod today, is the asset freeze. That's actually really something. Okay, so the idea that the SEC with Binance uh, is requesting an asset freeze. Now, part of what they're saying is that the illusion of separation between Binance US and Binance International is an illusion. Now, again, not for me to say, but that is the assertion. And if that is the case and the request for an asset freeze against Binance US um, holds or is, is granted, that could have implications for freezing of assets of the broader, you know, whatever the assertion here is it's kind of like a parent company, right? So whether that's true or not remains to be litigated. But if that is the case, it could have implications for freezing of assets or the broader Binance proposition, let's call it. That, I think, is novel and a really would be a really, really big deal uh, in terms of operation of the entire industry. So that's a differentiator as well. But like I say, the elephants are marching towards us again, you know, the herd of elephants, whatever, for some time. And now they're here, <laughs> you know, now they're yeah. here. And so we all have to kind of, I think, reckon with, you know, what is our response to this? How committed are we? to this industry. Uh, and I am really eager to talk to, to Kurt today because I think part of why we remain so committed 
Michael and many others is because we really do see uh, blockchain technology and crypto and crypto governance as foundational to a lot of other industries in the broader tech ecosystem, uh, the metaverse, you know, even elements of AR, uh, certainly AI. So really excited to bring in Kurt and, and chat about um, those connections today. Who's been patiently sitting in the wings here. <laughs> Let's bring Kurt in, but I, I just as one quick last segue as well. I mean, this is the reason I suppose one of the main reason I get so frustrated by this process is because it just seems like such a distraction. Like we spend all this time going down and obsessing with what what I think you know Nehan Rula like termed these token casinos and that really it's all about these systems of governance and these systems of managing sensitive data in a, in a trustless environment and how we can use that to resolve some of the many challenges that the world is facing and now on an accelerated basis as we're talking about AI. So with that as a segue, Kurt, thank you for waiting through that little sideline that we had to have there at the beginning. Welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself? You're the CEO of the Meta Foundation. Tell us what the Meta Foundation is all about to start with. Yeah, sure. First of all, a huge thank you to both of you, Sheila and Michael. Pleasure to be here. Um, certainly a number of interesting things going on. As you mentioned, I'm Chief Operating Officer of the MENA Foundation. The MENA Foundation is similar to many other blockchain projects with the foundation and, and communities around it. We're set up to support the MENA protocol and the, the blockchain and the ecosystem that's developing around that. Prior to joining MENA Foundation, I was with the DM Libra project pretty much from one of the many alums it seems of, the, of, the, of that project that are popping up around the place yeah so you know definitely one of the projects that i think raised the level and the velocity of the a lot of the conversations that are happening happening now and you know one of the things that drew me to that project right as both of you know this is such a fascinating space and whether you're interested in regulation and technology and macroeconomics and like social benefit there's like something for everyone. And kind of what attracted me to the space was utility. What can be created that really brings utility and functionality to people's um, lives? And, you know, even the DM project, love them or hate them, Facebook, Spotify, Shopify, all of these companies, they know how to make services that people like to use. So I thought, okay, here's a project, put aside like the stable coin and the, the, the payments issues, regulatory issues, you know, they, they know how to make services that people like to use and, and, and want to use. And I thought, here's a project that can help bring that into the mainstream. And, you know, when that ended, that's one of the reasons why I jumped into zero knowledge technology and joined the, uh, the MENA Foundation. And maybe just a quick primer about what MENA is and the MENA protocol. It's a layer one blockchain that's been developed using a native deployment of zero-knowledge technology. And what that means is that the consensus state of the blockchain is wrapped up into a really tiny zero-knowledge proof, less than 22 kilobytes in data. And the reason why that's interesting is it really starts accelerating and expanding the capabilities of decentralization, because with that tiny instance of that state of the blockchain, and if you can compare that to things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are now massive, mm -hmm. and if you want to participate on those blockchains, you've got to download, re-execute every single transaction that requires a ton of um, hardware, knowledge, and know-how. Whereas with Mina, you know, that can be contained easily on a mobile device, within a browser, doesn't require a lot of middlemen in between. 
all of that's really cool, but what, what's really exciting about it is the programmability layer that's been developed on top of it. That's the ability now for application developers to write decentralized applications, what we call ZK apps, mm-hmm. using zero-knowledge technology um, to create new ways for end users, basically consumers like you and I, to share data, but protecting it and deciding who we want to share it with and how we want to share it. So effectively allowing greater controls of privacy. You know, some people aren't always entirely familiar with some of these these very important crypto terms. And so zero-knowledge proof sounds like that's that's an integral part of what Mint is all about. And and just to break it down in the way I would, you know, it's, it is a, a cryptographic mechanism for um, sharing information uh, where the underlying details of that information do not need to be shared, but you can provably show that you are aware of that you you have that knowledge, and that that with that enables a whole host of ways to prove the state of a ledger or the state of a set of arrangements without having to know the underlying details, and it, it just have to say something like medical records or you know there's just so many different ways in which this becomes incredibly powerful. And now that we're in it, this is where we want to sort of pivot the conversation, if we can, into the AI world, because I think actually it becomes not only an imperative for us to talk about, but it's also a really good descriptive use case as to why this might be valuable, right? There are human beings now whose data is being used to to produce results uh, that we all play off, and that raises privacy concerns as well as, you know, a whole lot of hosts of, on the flip side of that, truths. Like, you know, can we prove something? Because uh, we've got doubts about, you know, fake images and fake news and, and everything else. And so, you know, AI is really elevating and accelerating that conversation. So why don't we just dive into an AI aspect of this? You know, you, you sort of, you shared with some, some notes before you came on and you talked about the why the rise of AI requires effective governance. Why don't we just like break down that issue itself, right? Like, like and I think it's just becoming so important in the context of these large companies, Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI itself, you know, being the stewards, if you like, of this new technology and and owning massive amounts of processing power and data in the process. It feels to me, and I wrote about this column last week, that this is just the most important use case for, whether it's a blockchain or something else, a decentralized ethos being applied to, to this structure because we really do not want this very, very important technology to be in the hands of these, these singularly centrally controlled entities. Uh, I think that is the actual essence of the problem. That may not be speaking for you here. Can you just tell us what you mean by effective governance and the importance of that and how this kind of technology is valuable for that? Yeah, well, you know, again, just a a little double click. I think you explained ZK really well, right? But there's always two parties in every zero-knowledge transaction, a prover and a verifier. The prover wants to prove something is true without divulging the the data, and the verifier um, verifies that. And... Think about AI, right? Like at the core, what is AI? Well, it's a massive way of of pattern matching and just looking at massive sets of data and being able to to match patterns much, you know, in some cases, much, much more quickly than humans can do. And as we get more complex patterns, the way, you know, they get matched and the way output gets generated can definitely be biased. So when you talk about governance of systems or governance of AI, right? It's it's taking a look at, well, you know, how can you ensure that, you know, these things aren't going to be 
um, execute it in a way that does discriminate or does um, bias against uh, uh, whether it's certain individuals or certain ways of, of thinking. And we've seen with ChatGPT, for example, a lot of people have learned how to game the, the system. So zero knowledge proof can bring an element of utility here where, for example, if you're thinking, if you're trying to prove that parameters have been run through a certain model, and let's say it's a proprietary model, and you don't want to give away all the details of the model, but you can still prove that something was run against that model and generate a zero knowledge proof against it. If you think about governance in general, right, like governance typically involves some form of voting of communities trying to vote. And that's another area where zero knowledge can be used in terms of who has the right to vote. Can people vote anonymously, but still proving certain credentials that they have the right to vote? And can they be allowed to vote in a way that they're not being discriminated against? And, you know, that applies to whether it's AI or DAOs or even governmental elections, really a wide swath of, of uh, cases where, where voting is required. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. So, Kurt, when you talk about governance, the premise is that you want to have, I'm assuming the premise here, so uh, bear with me. The premise is you want to have a more uh, democratic, small d you know, approach to governance, where you want to have a limited ability for you know, certain players to kind of game the systems and, and wrest control. Uh, and if that control does happen, it should happen in a way that's very transparent. So there's immediate kind of accountability or at least awareness that that is what is going on. Um, and I'm curious how you know, with ZKP is a question I get asked sometimes is, you know, if you don't know who the underlying, you know, uh, body is, for example, how do you stop the governance from being just taken over by a set of actors that are working in coordination or are, you know, complicit with each other who are, are all um, just just working against the interests of, of, of the minority, right? And are, are kind of like conspiring is the word I'm looking for. So how do you make that kind of pattern transparent? And this ties in, I think, to the allegations around machine learning as a general matter and LLMs, which basically are saying, well, if the training data is itself inherently biased, then the results it spits out are going to also be biased, which is a, just a different version of the garbage in, garbage out, you know, problem yeah. that's been inherent in computer science for a very long time. So yeah, I'm curious how you think about those topics. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's a it's complicated topic, <laughs> right? And, it, and you know, I, th I think in general, Web3 collectively, like, the technology is one thing, and then there's a lot of other aspects that it has to be layered into and, and woven in order for a, a complete solution. And I, I don't claim to have the answer um, single-handedly to, to any of those. But I think in terms of what you brought up, though, Sheila, like how zero knowledge can help, for example, is with the voting process itself so that votes can be submitted without revealing even to the person collecting or the organization or the entity collecting the votes, what those results are yet. They can be contained within a proof that can only be released by 
the voter or the, the protocol when the vote is complete. So that way you don't know who is voting for, you know, necessarily who is voting for what. We've seen a lot of cases like that, not necessarily within the context of AI just yet. But if you think about what happened with the, the Constitution DAO, and if you remember that, that instance where the DAO wanted to buy the, the Constitution, but the amount that they were collecting and everything was on chain, another individual was able to see that and front run basically everything they were trying to do. So that was kind of a wake up call for voting, particularly within DAO. So, you know, it gets into just how privacy is and credentials are verified and can be controlled. And again, whether it's AI, whether it's DAOs, whether it's, you know, um, who's got the best voice, um, can be applied applied to a lot of different types of, uh, uh, of voting. You know, it's interesting. I, I a bit of a side note, but something I we did this big project when I was at the World Economic Forum on uh, using a blockchain to help uh, think about corruption in public procurement processes, right? And one of the things I said to the team over and over again, to the ministers we we're working with and whatnot, was you know transparency can be a tool of accountability. It can also be a tool of exploitation. Absolutely. And without a policy wrapper, without rules of the road around transparency, transparency itself is kind of like code. It's not good or bad. What you do with the transparency is what matters. And I think we make the mistake a lot of times in our industry of talking about transparency, transparency, as if that is the be all end all state by which all problems get solved. Right. And I think what you're kind of saying is, at least in the Constitution Dow case, and I'd be remiss if I didn't know, we did a podcast episode on the Constitution Dow case, whatever, a year or whatever ago, or whatever that was, I don't know, time flies. And, and that is an example, right, where there was exploitation. It was very easy to do by an individual who just kind of swept in at the last minute and outbid, you know, the, the collective that was working together on this project. And so I think when it comes to AI, you know, the big accusation is about the black box and the fact that there is minimal to no transparency, even if you can track the inputs that go into the black box, uh, the black box being the algorithm. And maybe Kurt, you can spend some time explaining how all that works. Um, but, you know, you don't know how they're weighted. You don't know what's done with them. You don't know what the you know, you put all the ingredients in, but you don't really know if your soup's going to taste more like celery or carrots or whatever. Right. And it isn't always dependent on how many celery or carrot pieces you put in. This went awry. You don't always know. It depends on all kinds of other factors. And certainly as we move more and more towards AGI, the idea that we're going to have control just by selection of inputs over what comes out becomes more and more, I think, of an observable fallacy. Uh, but I'm curious, maybe you can talk a little bit about the black box in general and how you know uh, you think about that and how uh, Web3 can actually uh, works in conjunction with that concept. It's a really interesting question, right? And I, one of the ways I was thinking about this was, you know, kind of in the context of other sort of decentralization. If you only have one AI black box and you, you know, query against it, you'll get a certain set of results. But let's say you've got multiple AI boxes in a decentralized manner, and then you could sort of aggregate and see, am I getting the same result or the same responses? Or are there some AIs that have some kind of bias of sort of, you know, extrapolating that that concept of decentralization? The idea that we actually have to be like, we have to have AIs to govern the other AIs. We're not going to do it ourselves. And if we can structure that the right way, then we're going to be hopefully have something to fall back on to say, this isn't working as it should be, right? It's AI's point? all the way down. AI's all the yeah. way down. Yeah. <laughs> Turtles all the way down or AI's yes, yes. all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I think that's that's going to be really important here, like I think I think when you were talking earlier about the voting and, and the role that zero knowledge proofs can play, and, and Sheila weighed in quite nicely there about like transparency is not everything. You do need privacy as well. 
One of the things I like about zero-knowledge proofs is it's not just a privacy mechanism. It's it's a mechanism for actually getting to where we need to be, which is why we have transparency. Is because we want to we want to be, be able to verify information. We are, we need that in the society. So you know there there are wonderful tool for like having that duality, as you pointed. There are both sides to this. That being the case, I want to drill down into I think the building block for what is the nub of the problem for AI, and that is that you've got a machine, an algorithm, a digital mechanism that is inherently non-human, and both the sources of the information and the users of that information are human beings, are literally us, individuals, flesh and blood. And so there's a whole conversation about how do we establish our, our humanness? And you've got WorldCoin, for example, out there with this orb that they want us to have with biometrics. And I'm actually on the fence about it. I think this may be the solution. I'm not as terrified of the biometric overlord kind of fears that a lot of conspiracy theories have around that project. But at the same time, I totally understand the fears that it was a real privacy issue. But they are amongst many people trying to solve a core problem of AI. It's like, okay, how do I know that this is one person, one vote? And the, and the whole bot problem that is, you know, endemic across Web2 for that matter. I mean, Amazon, you know, ratings on books are, you know, ridiculous. It's all just these bots that conduce it. And yet here we, we start to arrive into a world as if we, if we do want to increase human agency in this inherently digital process, we're going to have to draw a link somehow between that human and that vote, right? So, so where do you guys come at from that? Because one of the things that's a, a building block of this, of course, is a did, the, the digital ID uh, uh, standard that's now come through the Web3C. Uh, the W3C, and it's starting to think about this building block upon which we now have control of our data. We parcel out credentials, but at some point you've got to come back to the idea that it's one person that's there and you can prove that. So have you thought about that? How does it, how was that at all? You mentioned there are various other pieces of the pie that have to come together to solve the AI problem. How are you thinking about digital identity? Yeah, I, I think that's an evolving thing. And I, I will answer that, Michael, but I, I just wanted to make one comment because you know, oftentimes we do, and I agree, like we talk about, are we seeing a deep fake? Is this really a human person? Is it, or on Twitter, is it a bot or whatever? But it sort of begs the question, like, what's the agenda? If we're seeing a generated image that's talking about somebody, something, or an actual human being that's also just a puppet, you know, mm -hmm. um, controlled, okay, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but controlled by the deep state, right? Like, do we, do we really care about whether it's human or not, or really just more what's the source of the data? It's just one higher level of obfuscation and disinformation, right? Like, like yeah. the intent of that fake, that, that deep fake, is to have somebody believe that it's actually a human. That to me seems, you know, a, a fundamentally different level of fraud than... Uh, this like uh, this person is is telling us something that they've got an agenda behind. I, I get it; they're different, but there's something about that level of, I don't know, disguise that makes it sort of seem more even more nefarious. Yeah. So again, you know, at the core, there has to be some way, right? Some whether it's centralized or decentralized, some system that provides a credential that this is real living person and whether that's centralized organization or government or some consortium of decentralized like you you need that at the core to to make a proof of something or to be able to prove that I'm a living breathing human individual I was at a recent developer conference and there's a, a startup in um, based in Zurich that is doing something interesting where local like wherever you are you, you join this community 
And this community actually meets in person like once a month and they socially verify, you know, it'd be like Michael has shown up, he's breathing, he's a real person. And the more you show up and the more scores you get, like the the more valid your humanness becomes so you can actually prove it on the blockchain. And so that's a combination of actual in real life experience. And then you could transact with somebody across the globe that's part of the same community, but they'll know, okay, this guy has shown up, uh, you know, in London five times. He's been in person in Portugal where other people have, have vouched for him. And you build up kind of a rating of, you know, stronger likelihood that this is a real person. So, I, you know, just one thing I've seen, I thought it was super, super yeah, interesting. Like a web of trust or, or, or like, yeah. yeah, got this provable experience that you can bring to the, to the record. Yeah. Give us a little bit more detail about then the priority of, of MENA, right? So you, you sort of, you're talking here about uh, zero knowledge proofs at its heart. What's your strategy for taking this to, to, to market? Are you looking to work with AI developers? It seems like that's where a lot of the focus is. I mean, how do we, and in some respects, it's a broader question as well about how do we operationalize blockchain technology broadly as a critical element of this, of this new, like, very dynamic future that we're working, moving into? No, absolutely. And, you know, we're kind of the way I like it is we're, we're building the playground and we want people to come in and, and play on the, the, the things that um, are possible to, to do. So basically building the toolkit and the tool sets we don't claim to know what the answer is, right? We want to provide like here, it's easy to develop on top of Mina. You can use common programming languages, um, easy to work now with, with zero knowledge technologies and create zero knowledge proofs, benefiting from uh, the infinite recursion that's available on, on uh, Mina. Um, and so, you know, the idea is just to attract as many developers as we can that want to be able to use this technology. And what's really nice, if, if I get a little plug about Mina, is its small state makes it so interoperable. So the entire state of the Mina blockchain can be contained in a smart contract on Ethereum. So you could still use, you know, Mina as the place to verify and store proofs, whether it's, you know, voting credentials, whether it's uh, a ZKP of a KYC, and still use it within broader applications that are developed on, on other um, on other blockchains. Hmm. I want to get back to this fundamental question that I think we're we're struggling with. And it, it's it's a frame on how the crypto industry is currently being perceived by some. So I'm going to take this a little further afield. And it's it's interesting to me that uh, there are parts of, you know, uh, the policymaker, even public, and even, frankly, journalist community uh, and the academy. I mean, there's people all over the place, right, who are, who are really eager to vilify crypto as fundamentally unethical or as fundamentally, you know, uh, opposed to uh, societal values like, you know, equity and inclusion and tolerance and compassion, all these things, right? Uh, on, at the same time, some of those same people seem abundantly eager to provide machines uh, and bots, uh, you know, tremendous access to some of our most intimate social spaces. And that contradiction, I find, extraordinary. I truly find it extraordinary. And I think we never really address this head on in the crypto ecosystem, which is, do we trust tech more than people? Uh, and I've said, you know, publicly and before on the show, my take that, you know, humans are going to human, right? And, and humans have human for since the dawn of time, you know, since 
before any of us in our lineages were around, you know, people have been doing terrible and wonderful things to and for each other for, for the whole of human history. And some of that is now documented or possibly documented on chain. And some of that is being transferred to machines, you know, to, to take over for us and empower. And so I guess it's more of a philosophical question than anything really technical, you know, but do you think that the intersection of crypto and AI or blockchain technology and AI or ZKPs and AI or any of these things, right? Any, any of the core components of what we think of as the, as the uh, blockchain and Web3 ecosystem, how do you think that's going to play out? You know, how do you think the clash of this currently vilified by some parts of, you know, the world industry and this kind of like feared, but in more like an awestruck way, you know, uh, technology is, is going to play out? I'm just really curious oh. to get your thoughts. Oh my goodness, Sheila! You know the arc of history will will show right basically where things are landing. And what I mean by that is, you know, like you mentioned it, Sheila, we're dealing with a number of fundamental things: massive mistrust in central organizations, whether central banks, central health agencies, news media. Same time, we've got climate issues. How do we share resources, etc.? The technology that's being developed with Web three is one piece of the puzzle, right? If you think. We can share resources better through tokenization, through fractionalization. We have to evolve better ways of governance and protecting also perhaps discriminated or marginalized individuals, bring them into the system. So again, I don't think the answer is all in the technology, but these tools will help. Much in the way, you know, when the, the banking systems came out and then credit cards were the next innovation, it helped make payments a little bit more fluid. So you know, I think vilification, not vilification, regulation, like regulation and compliance have to meet at, at some point and, and they will together with, with innovation. I think people will come around to see that technology can help. So, Michael, I hope that was quick yeah. enough. Could yeah, uh, yes. Uh, listeners, unfortunately, we have to cut it short there because I have to run to something else. And Sheila managed to drop a, a big question <laughs> at the very end that could have gone on for ages. And Kurt, you did a tremendous job, I must say, of, of like, coming up with some very smart, well-rounded, high-level answers with full knowledge that I was under some time pressure. So I really appreciate you doing that. And Sheila, like, you know, you really put him to the test there. Okay, well, listen, <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Kurt Hamaker from Mina Foundation for doing Thank you, Sheila, as always, for joining us on this. Thank you, all of you, for listening once again to Money Reimagined. Do come back again next week to catch another episode. You can listen to us weekly on the CD Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, as we always say, we'd love to hear from you. Just please feel free to email us at podcast at coindesk.com. Subject line, Money Reimagined. That's all for now. See you later. Bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.